Brendan Milstein is the CEO and founder of Carbon Lighthouse, a company that provides software that helps reduce energy consumption in commercial buildings, making it easy and profitable to do so. Prior to funding and eventually raising over $130 million for Carbon Lighthouse, Brendan worked for NY CERTA, which is the state agency charged with addressing New York's largest energy and environmental issues. He co-administered an $87 million budget executing energy efficiency and demand response projects at 250-plus manufacturing plants and high-rise office buildings in New York City for leaders like Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and CBR Small Brands. Before that, you worked as a research fellow at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory investigating both Lion, no, Lion batteries. L-I, Lion, Lithium-Ion batteries. Is it lithium? Okay, yeah. got it. All right, I should have, you know, that, that's what happens when you're not fully concentrated in your biology class. All right, so, and advanced building materials. Brendan obtained an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and an MS in Renewable Energy Engineering. Also from Stanford, he holds a BA in Physics, cum laude from Harvard University. So you're a slacker is what I, we're trying to say, <laughs> clearly. I will, I will try not to be horribly pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. There's a, there's a lot to unpack and very little time. So let's do it. So Brendan, the first question I have for you is, where did you grow up and did that influence your passion with climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up about five blocks apart from my co-founder. So Raphael and I were physics lab partners at Harvard together, but we've been best friends since about kindergarten, which has been That's really awesome. fun. Yeah. And where we grew up definitely influenced us. Uh, so Raphael's father is the chief scientist at Livermore National Laboratory, which just released the fusion breakthrough. So he's been- What? Yeah. That's insane. So wow. small world, <laughs> small, small world in the, in the energy space indeed. And Raphael has been, you know, just grew up with talk of, of energy and energy policy and renewable energy and climate change. Since he was a, a, a little kid, we both grew up going to Yosemite and experiencing the, the wonders of the outdoors. I really became passionate about climate change specifically as a problem in high school. So my there's, we grew up in Berkeley, California, and there's one high school, and this is- Super conservative. I'm kidding. <laughs> super conservative, but, but we have this conversation in 2023, and you know, I went to high school, I started in the 90s, and Berkeley was not yet part of Silicon Valley. San Francisco wasn't part of Silicon Valley, and it was a very, it was a college town. And the high school, there's one public high school, and there were sons and daughters of professors and kids from parts of town that were really struggling and relatively little in the middle. So I went to Harvard with seven of my classmates from Berkeley High, but our freshman class, our high school freshman class of 1,000 graduated 650 or 700 kids. We had 20 fires, one of which burnt down the B building, and oh, it was tough. And I spent a lot of high school really deciding low-income education was impossible. But my senior year of high school, I took a nuclear engineering class at UC Berkeley. And mm. here's this way to improve the lives of billions of people. 
And unlike education, the financial incentives were aligned. We could just hand people money to do the right thing for the planet. And that felt so winnable. So mm. that's been my cause ever since. So off to college to study physics and fast forward a decade and Raphael and I started Carbon Lighthouse with the exact same mission to make it really profitable for organizations to reduce their carbon emissions. And, and so what we and, do now. And before before jumping into Carbon Lighthouse, I want to share a little bit about your experience at, and is it NY Serta or how, how do you pronounce that? Well, I know it's a, a NYSERDA. 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 Yeah. Okay. And so can you, can you share with us what, what was the mission there again and what was the objective and how was that experience? We'd love, love to learn from that experience. Were there any particular lessons learned or things that you took from it that you then uh, kept with you when, when you were thinking about Carbon Lighthouse? Yeah, I have great stories from NYSERDA. That was a, <laughs> a fabulous experience. So NYSERDA is a state agency. So this is government. It's New York government. That's what the NY is for. It's, so it's New York State Energy and Research Development Authority. And basically everyone's utility bill in New York has a little surcharge on it that goes to funding NYSERDA. NYSERDA takes the money and it's supposed to do things that lower overall the system costs of the electric grid in New York. So mm. theoretically everyone pays effectively a tax and then the state agency is supposed to use that in ways that reduce the overall cost. So it should be a net benefit financially to every consumer in New York. And NYSERDA was amazing. It's a big, well, it's actually from a government agency perspective, it's small, but from a not having worked in government before, it was big. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's a big government agency. There's tons of inefficiencies and yet it does its job really well. So I think on average at the time I was there, you know, for every dollar NYSERDA took in, it lowered electric bills by $2 across the state. Wow. Um, so what an amazing initiative was that was that something relatively innovative in terms of a program or I'm guessing they took it from another state that had been applying it or what's innovative about NYSERDA is so stupid and simple as to be ridiculous which is <laughs> in right. almost every other state the utilities are supposed to run the efficiency programs and I don't know why we do this in America. It's the same thing. Cigarette companies got so to like the approve. incentives are not are yeah. not in the right place. They're not there. And states like California have gone through pretty complicated policy things to try and align the incentives. So there's decoupling, there's deregulation, and these things do really help. They at least get utilities to fight in more insidious ways. But what I sort of did was they just said, or what New York did was they said, look, utilities aren't going to want to cut energy. Let's have a state agency do this. And that worked pretty, pretty really well. Amazing. So that was, quote, the big innovation there. <laughs> and and <laughs> just, hey, that's big, right? F figuring out what are the right incentives and, and aligning them properly. What, when, when you were there, were there, was there any part of what you did there that any particular experience you mentioned that there are like stories but any particular experience of uh, what were you doing exactly there let's just begin there 
Yeah. So I had state funding to pay people to reduce landlords specifically to reduce their buildings energy consumptions. And oh, okay. That's yeah. I feel like that really ties <laughs> with eventually what you end up doing as well, right? Yes, exactly. And the the reason you need a state agency involved in this rather than having the market solve it is a fewfold. But the, the simplest thing is that the way most lease structures are set up in the U.S. and actually world is there's a huge split incentive. Namely, the landlord gets the utility bill and pays it, but they get reimbursed by tenants for that. And so if they reduce their energy consumption, the value actually goes to the tenants. And so why would the landlord pay $3 million to do something that reduces energy costs when all of that value goes to tenants? Landlords are not charities. And so this is actually a great place where you have a typical market failure that capitalism is not going to solve on mm. its own, at least in the short term. And it's a great place for government. And what Carbon Lighthouse does is actually bring a market solution to this issue. But like in government's defense, this issue has been around since the 70s. Like we are 50 years late to the party. So, you know, the joke about capitalism is yes, it solves everything in the long term and by then we'll all be dead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hopefully not, but yes. Yeah. Exactly. You're right. And and so as as you were doing this there, I guess you you began learning a ton about everything that you've been sharing, right? Like the the incentives, the the parties that are involved, walking out of that experience did that leave a certain bug in your head where you said, you know, if, if, if we go our own way, this is, this is the area that I want to go or not really. Or, you know, I love yeah. movies. I love movies where they, you know, they, they simplify everything, you know, like they, they say like, and because of that particular experience, like then I did this, but a lot of the times it kind of, you know, it, it, life happens and you go one way, you go another way. And maybe you don't remember what, what that was or how that influenced you. But in yeah. your case, what, what did it look like? I can, I can draw a super straight line through it in perfect hindsight. And oh, that's, right. of course, not what happened. Uh, <laughs> so that NYSERDA was amazing. I had, I had three supervisors at the same time. Every single one of them was amazing. I learned engineering from them. I learned how markets work. I was based in Manhattan, but everyone was up in Albany. And I had this huge budget to literally pay people to do things. So like, if you're a landlord in New York, you saw this 22-year-old kid with a $90 million budget, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to talk to him. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, I had this ridiculous access, and the learning curve was just amazing. But then I had really good support on the back end. So I'd get back to my office, and like, you know, because there were, the, there were so many people managing me, I could always reach at least one of them. So that was just incredible. And I, I ultimately left NYSERDA in part because it was working so well, it seemed odd to restrict the battle to just state lines, right? Like we had a system that worked. I wanted to do it everywhere, not just in the state of New York. And so I was trying to figure out like, okay, there are all these companies I could join that can work globally. Like mm -hmm. how can I get, and I'm, I'm an ambitious guy. My goal is to stop climate change. It's not a small goal. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I was looking at all of these renewable energy companies and trying to figure out like, okay, all these VPs at these firms, like they have a PhD in mechanical engineering. So it's going to be like five, six years and hard. Uh, or they have just like 10 years of work experience, which would be pretty interesting, but 10 years. Or, mm-hmm. oh, gee, a lot of them have an MBA. And I think that's only two years. And I'm pretty sure you just drink the whole time. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> so. I went to business school really with a goal of joining. I didn't want to start my own company. I wanted to join an existing renewable energy company that was cheaper than coal and help it expand. And Mm. while I was in business school, first of all, just Stanford was an amazing place and I wanted to extend my time there. So I added the engineering degree largely just so I could have an extra year. So that, that was, yeah. And like, all of this will be a straight line later, but like, those were the reasons. Like I wanted an extra year at Stanford. Like that's why I got an engineering degree. There. <laughs> like, and it, it turns out all of those classes are exactly the like foundation of how we built the technical system at Carbon Lighthouse. But like, I didn't know that at the time. Oh, I love and like I love same that. deal with yeah. business school. Like that was so phenomenally helpful with fundraising and like getting connected to this world, like Stanford itself, you know, we did a million dollars of business with like relatively quickly after graduating and like none of that was planned none of that was the reason i went so and that's perfect i was just gonna say you 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 and rafael started carbon lighthouse while you were in school still yeah right that extra year i wanted ended up being total chaos and hard as i'll get out because i ended up we started the company in the fall of my second year of business school and then you know, within a couple of months, it was clear this is what we were going to do. And so now I didn't want an extra year at Stanford. I wanted to graduate. So I ended up doing all three years in two oh. years. And that, that oh, last, wow. while starting a company, that was exciting. While starting a company, how <laughs> did you, do you remember that? Did you just block that out of your mind later? Like what, how do you do that? Time management skills, I'm for sure. The, this, uh, so I met my wife while at Stanford, and this was yeah. before the engineering degree, before we'd started Carbon Lighthouse. It was like the very okay. end of the first year. and The good days. She, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the, the easier days, anyway. So I don't know that I'd say better. Yeah. And she was in med school. And med school is a lot of work. And business school, I did not find to be a lot of work. And she almost broke up with me because she was worried I had no work ethic. And that, that would have just been... <laughs> One of the great. Well, then you showed her. You showed her. You said, "Look, I can do all of it in in a year and the business." Wow, that's that's really impressive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that that worked out. And and, and so I, I'm I'm always you know and and every founder that I speak with I'm always fascinated about that first customer, right? So you have, you have this vision, you have this idea of where the problem is, what you want to solve. And then it's like the reality of, okay, let me have this conversation with so-and-so. Let me see. So like, what, what was that journey for you? How did the company get off the ground? And who, do you remember who your first customer was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, that memory is seared into my brain. <laughs> it was, it was really, really, really hard. So Raphael and I are both physicists and we were pretty confident, like, okay, we'll figure it out technically. Let's focus on sales first and like really make sure 
We didn't know we were doing this at the time, but what we were doing was validating market demand. And so we started calling people. And thank God, I got to say, we didn't really know how to validate market demand because now we would have changed tax a lot earlier. But we called a friend, you know, we called all of our friends like, hey, do you know anyone who owns or manages commercial real estate? And then we talked to everyone they introduced us to and asked the same thing. And so after talking to a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, we had our first customer. But that took a thousand phone calls. And that should have been like red flag number one. Like at the point you've had to make more than a hundred, like, cool, the demand's not <laughs> strong enough. Stop. <laughs> but we didn't we didn't know that at the time. Did and I'm always curious about like the discovery process. Did you as you started having more of these conversations? Well, let's let's go with you had that phone call. What was that first that eventually became a customer? And in essence, what was the problem that they were dealing with that you said we can help you out with? Yeah. So the the problem we were trying to solve, and this is the, the one piece of advice I will give every entrepreneur is go get startup owner manuals by Steve Blank and read it. If you don't mm. want to read, go to his YouTube series and watch every single one of the 127 videos. They're like three minutes long. It's less of a commitment than that sounded. But like, we didn't know how to do discovery. The problem we were trying to solve is climate change. That's not a market problem. Like hmm. climate change doesn't matter if you're a business. Like that matters when your investors breathe down your neck and are like, what are you doing for climate change? And like, you can check that with a box in 10 seconds. Like, oh, we have a plan. Here you go. Can we go back to making money? Sounds good. Like hmm. that's, that's, it's not a, it's not a problem. And we didn't know how to do customer discovery. So our first customer was someone who did care and they were on the bleeding edge and we were coming along with, Hey, we make it profitable to reduce your emissions. And so that gives people like people make decisions, not companies, but it gives a person who wants to do something good for the planet an excuse to get it through their organization, which is, Hey, this is going to make us money. We should do it. But they're not doing it to make money. That's their excuse. They're doing it because they want to stop climate change. And the challenge for us in working, and this led to our technical system, the challenge for us in working with that person is that they had already worked with every other efficiency company they could find. And so we have made literally a thousand phone calls. We signed this contract and we've been, we're so proud of ourselves. We've aligned our financial incentives. So we only make money if we reduce energy use at this building. And if we can't figure it out, we don't make any money. And so we show up this building and it's perfect. Like there's no low hanging fruit. There's no medium hanging fruit. Like the equipment is brand new. And we are now too panicked physicists because they're like, holy crap, like we can't do that again. We just called a thousand people. We've one customer. We have to make it work. And we had $10,000 to our names. So, you know, what do panicked physicists do? They measure everything. And then they pray someone missed something in the data. So we got $2,000 worth of sensors, deployed them everywhere. And sure enough, someone had missed something in the data. And there was a fan the control system thought was off at night, but actually was running. And this is ventilation for the whole building. And so we were able to fix this part of the control system and save 3% of the whole building energy. And it worked 3%. out. 3%. Wow. Well, that, but, that must, I mean, that must add up to, to quite a, quite a figure when you're talking about buildings of this size. 
it, it adds up to hundreds of dollars. It's like nothing. It's terrible. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, I would have thought uh, like because of a massive, you know, building that like, even though it sounds like it's a small percentage, it actually is, you know, thousands of dollars. No, not really. Uh, this was but a school. It was a, it was a hundred. It was a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> This was not a smelting plant. This was a school. And we did we did later work with Tesla. And I think we got actually closer to 12% savings there. And that really matters. But like a school, 3%, it, it, I exaggerate on hundreds, but I think it was thousands of dollars. Like, it, okay. which is okay. like, it's a school that matters, but it's not, it's not incredible. It's but, not incredible. Okay. But it worked. And now we had one happy customer and we had one reference and case study and a little bit more confidence. And so now it took only a couple hundred phone calls to win our next customer. And same thing happened. Low hanging fruit gone, medium hanging fruit gone. Like, but now we had 20 grand to our name. And so we were able, probably you'd say the school like five grand a year or something. So I think they paid us 10K. And we and now, how was how yeah. was that business model? You me, you mentioned it very briefly, where you say we go, we tell them we're going to save them this much, they pay us this much, and I'm guessing the difference. Uh, so yeah, if you can share a little bit. Yeah, at at the time we were doing a like at the time we just had a one time fee that was kind of based on the savings. So people were typically getting like a two or three year payback. Okay. Now the modeler, the model is much simpler. We just charge seven cents a square foot and our customers are getting anywhere from 20 cents to 50 cents a square foot. So if there's a million square foot portfolio, they're paying us 70 grand and they're getting 200 to 500 K a year. How did you know that you could find that big of a difference in terms of savings. And I, I'm getting, even from that first customer, right? I'm guessing you're making, and this is a customer that from your own words, like they already applied many, you know, they had the top technology, they had all this, you know, they invested already in making sure that their energy use was they're super smart. How How did you figure that out? Yeah, this is a combination of having seen it so much in New York already that it was mm. pretty rare to find a building where there wasn't good opportunity and belief, belief in ourselves that, hey, we're, we'll figure it out. And then also belief that people would be forgiving if we treated them well too. So mm. our contract was set up so that if we didn't find anything, we didn't charge them. And that means the customer's only risk is time which is really important in many ways more so than money. But spending a couple hours with people who are friendly and respectful and forthright about things, that's not so bad. So we figured like, hey, if this really doesn't work out, like, you know, we don't charge them anything and we try and comport ourselves the way we would want to be treated and no harm, no foul. And that that did actually work out for us. I can tell you stories from a different building where that was very relevant. Well, what happened with that? How did that help you with the, well, I'm guessing, so relationships always help. There's something that I also share with founders, which is if anything, regardless of technology you have, like it's still very much a relationship world and that's relationship with your customers and you should place time 
and and effort into it because it, it they're human and you're human and it you know it does help. It, so you were leveraging this, this this other customer. What happened? Oh yeah, we blew open all of their doors and windows so they couldn't close their building. <laughs> <laughs> what? How's that possible? What do you mean? How's that possible? So the technical system we were this was 2011 but the technical system was similar to what we do now is just very early stages which is we get data from the building in real time and then we help the control system make the existing equipment operate more efficiently that's okay. the so it's not cranes we're not replacing big pieces of equipment it's all data sensors software and controls to make the existing equipment operate more efficiently that's how part of how it's so cost effective but in 2011, we didn't understand buildings so well, and our contractor had wired a pressure sensor backwards. So the more oh, the pressure no. went up in the building, the more it sent a signal to the control system saying, "Hey, the pressure's too low. Increase the so pressure." Increase and just and it's, it just kept <laughs> repeating itself till it blew yeah. up. And so finally we get a call from the customer because we're not on site. We don't, we don't know this. And we get a call and the customer is very calm. And she says, hey, the receptionist is complaining of a howling sound in the ductwork above her and none of the doors will close. <laughs> oh my God. It's like, okay, this is, this is bad. This is very, very bad. Did you figure it out fairly quickly or did it take some time? No. What it could took, possibly be happening? It took three days. So oh, it wasn't, no. the building was not in that state for three days. So it was pretty yeah. quick for us to turn things back to how they had been running. So we got the, the problem solved in, you know, two hours after that phone call, which is still not great for the record. <laughs> and then it took us another two and a half days to figure out what had gone wrong so we could run the controls, you know, the control system the way that we thought was was right. And so that ultimately worked out and we got something like 15 or 20% whole building energy savings, which which was significant. Wow. Um, but, you know, that that could have been end of days. That was our second customer. Oh, my God. <laughs> And so having that kind of a, a reputation in the marketplace is not likely to be great. <laughs> it's not what you're, it's not ideal. It's not yeah, ideal. it's not ideal. It's not ideal. Right. But right. this is where being forthright, I think, really helped us, which was like, we didn't pretend there wasn't an issue. We didn't try to blame someone like else. Like we dropped right. everything for three days to figure out what had gone wrong and fix it. And they really liked that. And this customer ultimately rolled us across their portfolio and invested in the company. And wow. Was... They became investors. That's incredible. Yeah. And what we didn't know at the time was stuff goes wrong in buildings all the time. Like physical systems are really hard. Stuff goes wrong mm. all the time. What is unusual is how people respond to it. Uh... And you probably not having come from that, I mean, I guess from that industry also. It's great. It's it's always wonderful to have great ethics. That's what yeah. I think. <laughs> this, <laughs> when yeah. you're a wonderful human being, sometimes it might not work out, but a lot of the times it does. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't think being nice to people was such a great strategy for me in middle school, but it's certainly worked out great. <laughs> <in my life. laughs> that's that's a, that's a, that's very true.
it does come back and it does help. So what, as, as you began signing customers, what, what are the incentives? Like, were there any lessons for every new customer that you signed up? Were there new things that you realized that helped out later on? So, you know, oh, we have two long sales cycles. We have two or like, what, what, what was something that was super evident by like the fifth customer that you came across that you're like, okay, something's not working or this is something we need to really focus on and, and solve. Yeah. So we had to massively overhaul the company during the pandemic and leading in. So from leading into the pandemic, we were a construction management company. And how many years had the company been around before the pandemic? 10. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Leading into the pandemic, we were a construction management company, and we had long-built software that our internal engineers used, Um, but there was no software to the outside world. It was all consumed by our mechanical engineers Mm. to figure out what to do in buildings and run those projects, and that was a good business. It was the type of business that Silicon Valley hates because it was super hard to scale and grow. And it was the type of business that turns into Bechtel. Mm. Uh, you know, like that is a, t- depending on the year, that is a $20 billion to $100 billion revenue company with 30% right. margins. And right. that's incredible. <laughs> right, right. And that's what we were building. And wow, is that hard to scale. And the pandemic started and our business model was something we were not legally allowed to do. So we were not legally allowed to send engineers to buildings in the pandemic. Right. And so So what do you do? Yeah, we had to pivot out of construction management and into a traditional SaaS company, which all of our investors told us would be hard. And man, was it hard. And they were not wrong. (laughs) Yes, they were so very right in that. And like they would say things... It's like one of the only times investors just writ large were so understated, but they're like, <laughs> oh, I think that transition's going to be very challenging for you. It's like, yeah, that was like the, the understatement of the century. <laughs> um, what did you, what was, so how did you go about from the construction management to SAS? So that, so now you had to create accessibility and an interface that was for someone else to be able to manage on their own. Yeah. And this is where, to answer your question, everything we had learned became enormously valuable because now we were starting effectively a new company, Mm -hmm. uh, except we had to do it super quickly during a pandemic with existing customers and at the time a pretty high burn. And so we could take all of those same lessons learned and discussions we had with customers and now apply it to a totally different lens of like, hey, instead of us using our software, let's give it to them. Like, okay, this is no longer about our process. It's about customer's process. But Mm -hmm. instead of a typical new founder needing to go and do that discovery, we could just think back through, okay, in the last 5,000 conversations we already had with this market, what Mm -hmm. were the patterns in their process and map it out and go. And Mm. so this is really the period of time when we 
discovered Steve Blake and could start doing hypothesis generation and validation pretty formally, but also very quickly. And so now we could put wireframes in front of customers and they'd be pretty close. And then we could say like, okay, what do you think of this? And like really move through because we had, you know, 10 years of experience building solutions for the same market, but solutions of a different type. I love that. So your your MVP for this new SaaS product already maintained was created with a ton of knowledge behind it, right? Well, previous experience. But then how did you, and you mentioned this that from Steve Blank, but how these, again, going back to discover, I guess, I don't know, we can still call them discovery calls because even there's a, there's a new, there's a new product in essence that, that you're offering. How, what was really helpful then? Like what worked for you? What was, did you jump on the, on a call with someone and like share the screen and say, here it is, this is how it works. What are your initial thoughts? What don't you like? What do you like? I mean, what, what, what did that process look like? Yeah. And I, I'm smiling because I've thought about this a lot and I'll, I'll put some metrics behind mm -hmm. it for you. So from 2010 through 2020, the company eliminated 14 power plants, you know, not, not bad. By the in way, terms, oh, in terms of the carbon, you improve the energy use so much, you save so much energy that it was the equivalent of getting rid of fourteen plants. You said yep. that so, yeah. and that's I'm get that's a ton, and that's a year or what? Yeah, per yeah, and it's it, to to contextualize it. By the way, we track power plants, which is a an 150 megawatt single cycle turbine natural gas power plant. If you're curious, okay. there's roughly the equivalent of if we had eliminated 14, there's roughly the equivalent of 49,986 left to eliminate to stop climate change. Wow! <laughs> wow! Wow! Okay, so a lot and 14 plants to also give a little bit of context. What? what the the type of carbon and you know all the bad stuff that they put out there in a year what is that the equivalent to like something that people can uh yeah relate uh, to i guess it's it's on the order of 20,000 tons of co2 per year which is not tangible and if you give me 20,000 yeah yeah no I, I, give me I'll, one I'll second at, i'll give you an equivalency too, what's what 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 is that yeah. Wait, I can like how many trees do you have to plant? <laughs> to, yeah, to I can do it for you. That. Yeah, twenty thousand. Okay, so twenty thousand tons per year of carbon is convert data. Okay, this is roughly four thousand cars being taken off the road. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Or, All right. So in those yeah in in those ten years. That's what you're able to do in terms of 14 plant. And that was before COVID hit. And now COVID so, hit, pandemic, you have to come up with a, you, you, you transition to a SaaS product. And then what happened? In 2021 and 2022, we eliminated another 22 power plants. Holy crap. That's yeah. insane. So Wow. Like on the order of 15 times faster impact and growth than growing a construction. Company. In two years. So in you did years. you did way more in two years than you did in the past 10. That's insane. Yep. And I think the largest thing that changed was having, from a founder perspective, was having a strong mm -hmm. mental model for what success looks like 
in the various stages of customer discovery and customer development. And so, uh -huh. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please tell, tell me what success looks like. So what's, what's, what's an example? Like what's a, what's a scenario you can share? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We spent a ton of time doing sales training on need finding and pain finding. Mm -hmm. And this was really helping our sales reps figure out like on calls with customers, like how do we find an issue that they have that's related that we can solve and mm. then make that issue seem as big as possible in their mind. Mm. And that is hard and we got really good at it. And then after this pivot, we don't need to do any of that. Like a surgeon doesn't do need finding or pain finding. Like when you break your leg, the surgeon is not doing this whole rigmarole to be like, tell me about the consequences of your broken leg. Like, <laughs> like oh, you broke your leg. I can fix it. <laughs> Got and it. In the 10 years before the pandemic, I had a very strong mental model for what not good looked like. And then it was only after seeing like how easy some of these calls could be that we really started developing a strong mental model for what good looks like within each phase of, phase of customer discovery. Mm. And so like, you don't need to do pain finding. That's a really good signal that your wow. product market thesis is like pretty good. Like people are just telling you. Um, right. I remember we had this Yeah, like one you guy. can skip that phase if everyone, exactly what you said. Like if you have yeah. a broken leg, you don't need to explain to someone why that can be something bad. They get it. It's like, yeah, yeah, we have a broken leg. And I, I remember during the pivot, we were talking to all of these different successful founders. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't remember this guy's company. It's ridiculous. He went from like zero to 50 million in ARR in like two years. And all I remember is his name's Johnny and he likes shoes. And behind him was just like a wall of shoes. So like in my head, he will forever be like incredible Johnny with the shoes. <laughs> we were asking him one of our investors put us in touch he's like you got to talk to johnny he's closing enterprise deals in like two weeks so i was like i gotta talk to johnny wow and we talked to johnny he's like i'm terrible at sales like i don't know why they told me to talk to you like here's how sales work i say we do something in this area can you tell me about this area and then the customer tells me how horrible that area is for them and how much pain it gives them. And then I say, okay, I think we can fix that for you. Here's what we do. And then they sign. Like, I'm not good at sales. <laughs> and like, that's what good looks like for a hypothesis. No, that's what amazing looks like for a hypothesis. But it's that's having- You know, a, you have yeah. a great product that's, that's really solving a pretty- painful, you know, yeah, a, a pretty painful experience. Yeah. And this is, you know, the first flag for us should have been when we needed to make a thousand phone calls to win a deal. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like yeah, that's, that's, that's not what good looks like. Like we, the last conference we went to, I think we talked to 45 people and 40 of those customers have already done their homework and are reaching out to us. Like, that's what good mm -hmm. looks like. It's not a thousand. One of the ways we've started to validate hypotheses is actually the way Cummins does it for testing. And this is, you know, these are multi-million pieces, dollar pieces of machinery they're testing, but they have a rule like three for three or four and five. 
Like if it can pass the test three times in a row, it's good enough. Um, and then if it breaks, like bummer, we lost $10 million and now we need to like go redo the design or something, you know, or if it passes it four for five times, like that's good enough too. So if like you go two of three, you can do two more tests. And if you get four or five, you're good. And that's how we have been testing things and like validating in the discovery phase of things. But because we have so much trailing history, we know how to segment the market so that the responses are correlated. Got um, it. And that's really, I think, one of the tricks is like, we don't need to get to N of 30. Like when everyone's responses are hyper-correlated with each other, N of three, N of four is enough. It's actually predictive. And it's only when you understand your market so well that you can segment and say like, okay, this person's response, it's going to be hyper-correlated with other people who meet these criteria. And then if that's your market, you don't need this big end for test. How long did it take for that transition? Like 12 for years. <laughs> <laughs> so when, uh, no, but I meant like COVID hit, now you're going the SaaS route, you're having these conversations, right? You're you're figuring out the pain point, you're realizing that it's it's, Pretty, it's pretty crystal clear to many of these individuals that they're, they're having this pain. How, how long did it take for you to say, all right, so this is how it can be a SaaS product versus what we currently have? Yeah, to overly simplify, I think it really took us all of 2021 to figure out how to build software. And then it took us 2022 to figure out how to build product. And then in 2023, we are flying. Wow. Any, any lessons from that year of product that you say, oh my God, if, if, if I could go back a couple years and just whisper in my own ear <laughs> about something <laughs> like, what, what would that be? Anything that comes to mind as, as you were going through this journey, right? Of of transition, of, of understanding the pain point and the product and all that. Yeah. Reread the Steve Blank stuff earlier and often. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Huge Steve Blank fan. And I think one of the things that really helped us was starting to work with more people with stage relevant experience. And so like one of the issues for us coming into and out of the pandemic was we were a growth stage company heading into it, you know, and what works for a 10 year old company with an established business model and the people who know how to grow that it's totally different than what works for a seed or a series A stage startup, which is what our SaaS offering was like in 2021 seed at best. Um, mm. you know, we had long built software for internal use and like, that's not the same. And so it was really, as we started to work with more and more people who had experience either in tech or product or both in marketing, actually in seed and series A stage companies that they were able to really help me and Raphael understand, you know, like, okay, like these are the tactics and playbook we run here, like let's run it. And then we could put our, you know, decade plus of experience in the market together with like the typical tactics you use at a successful seed or series a SaaS company together did you have to reshuffle your 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 core team 
for that transition and pretty much say like, sorry guys, like now we just, we're looking for these other types of skills and experiences or what, what, what do you have to do? Yes. Got um, it. And that it, is a short answer. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So you had to do that. And would, I'm guessing, cause I've, I've, I've heard this from friends as well. A lot of times they're like, I just wish I, I did it earlier. Like I, I, I tried best to kind of hold on and see, well, maybe because of the transition and, you know, they're good, they can adapt and they can blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I was just dragging it out and I wish I could have done it just from the get go. I don't know, but obviously with hindsight, you know, everything is better, but what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think the first time you as a founder or manager go through that, you can give yourself a little slack. Um, mm. It is, it's very normal and very human not to want to fire people and like right. we can call it whatever euphemisms we want a reduction in force a layoff like yeah. involuntary like you're firing someone yeah. that's what you're doing right. like in our case we had international people and like okay like whatever we call it like they're getting deported to china so like we're not right. going to take this situation lightly. Like we are mm -hmm. absolutely going to delay as you long as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like you know where we're at now, I think we have a really good question we ask managers, which is if you had a magic button you could press and someone would be happily employed somewhere else, would you press it? And mm -hmm. When they even pause in response, like, cool, you're over time. Mm. So that's that's been a very helpful question and framework. And like, yeah, if you're even considering it, you probably should have done it a month ago already. And like, the first time you go through that, like, yeah, of course, it sucks. And like, I had conversations with my HR department where we were trying to figure out like, okay, how can we keep this person technically employed so that they don't lose their visa status and like, mm, you know, be human yeah. about it. Tough. Like that's it's so tough. Yeah. And that's fine and good, but like the company almost died. Like we moved slowly to lay off people. And as a result, we risked having everybody lose their job and that would have been worse. With this pivot, you had to pivot also, was, was it pricing? I mean, pricing model, the new the model that you mentioned earlier, which was now it's fairly simple. We charge by the square foot, and we share what the difference is. Right? Was that did that go through many iterations as well, or no? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's I think there's two two parts of my mental model that have really improved the past few years that I think are really helping the company meet with success. One is what does good look like as it pertains to validating a hypothesis? And then the second is what does good look like in terms of how many hypotheses you can prove or disprove you know, per week or per month? And mm -hmm. when we are flying, good looks like disproving a hypothesis every single week. Now, wow. at some point, your hypotheses hit, and then you're advancing the stage, and the cadence slows down. Like, I can't prove a hypothesis in a week if the next set of proof requires 
signing seven of 10 enterprise deals, right? If that's the trailing data, like right. that isn't and, happening in week unless you're Johnny with the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. But like for us mortals, like signing seven of 10 enterprise sales deals to like exit the validation stage and enter customer creation, like that's three, four months. And so at that point, the validation or disproof of hypothesis slows down. But good in the early stages, especially on disproof, like every week was great. Twice a month was pretty good. And one hypothesis a month was like, that was really the slowest we should have been moving to disprove a hypothesis. What was, in terms of go-to-market for this product that you, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm blown away by you having to, after 10 years, just kind of flip the whole business and, 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 and really start, start from over, you know, start, start from scratch in essence, how the go-to-market for, for this SaaS product what was most effective for you? Like, what what did you figure out now that you were offering this? You know, what what worked for you? Direct sales, especially in the early stages, because there's no game of telephone between end use customer and founder learning stuff. Um, mm. So that has been really helpful. Hiring a head of product who also did product marketing and could help us really get our story straight and simple and understandable mm. and like he he has he that was really helpful because like there's sort of an issue with disproving a hypothesis which is like was the market not interested or did you butcher it and they weren't interested because they didn't understand you and, right you know that that's for us in particular that was a real issue because what we do no one else does in market like our we're ans like our it's a financial product and like there's technical stuff under it but that's a how like the financial product is we're actually renting access to people's mechanical rooms and this creates top line income for a landlord and solves this landlord tenant split incentive and the number mm -hmm. of other firms doing that is zero <laughs> and like now it's one we have a competitor and i'm so excited like, <laughs> You're like, come on, take a seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we're not new. They do it, and like, oh, right, they just right. copied us, which is great and fine. But like, yeah, oh, so, so I that, get, I get that part. So it's not just, it's not just we'll cut the savings by this much. I mean, we'll cut, we'll in, improve the savings by this much, but we'll we'll pay you for for this amount and save you this amount. Is, is yeah. that the yeah the wow. tenants yeah the tenants are gonna save whatever for a typical fifty thousand square foot building you know the tenants are gonna save ten grand and the landlord is gonna get new top line income of twenty grand a year and we're gonna charge like five grand. Wow. Okay. Got it. So the we're talking about two different parties there, or, or is there another one that I'm missing? It was actually five, which is hard. So there's the landlord, there's the tenant, there's the property manager, which is usually third party. And so they're involved. They're not like getting a cut of stuff, but they run the building. And then there's okay. the facility. So you still engineer. need to get their say on it. Yeah. Regardless of, okay. Yeah. There's the facilities engineer. And then actually there's usually a contractor plus us. So seven. 
Wow. And okay. this is why we have no competitors. <laughs> wow. And that sales cycle, I mean, that must be fairly, fairly long. I mean, because you, you, you got to have the approval of five different or four different people or how many? Yes and no. I mean, at the end of the day, like you're going to pay us five grand and we're going to pay you 50 grand a year for access to your mechanical spaces like that allows and we can do it. You know, you have a thousand buildings. So like, do you want five million dollars a year? Like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that allows us to cut through things very, very quickly in a way where if it's only the technical system. Yeah, then you need approval from five people. If it's a monetary system, like the landlord owns the building and they can say, go do this. I, I just have two more questions and, and and that's it. But this is fascinating. I love what you guys are doing. Really, really cool. When, all right, so one question is regarding technology, AI, all the improvements, all these things that are happening. What impact does that have? Does that have any impact on what you, where you guys are now, where you can be in a couple of years? Oh yeah. I think for, for those of us on the team, so <laughs> AI for a long time, I thought was extremely overhyped because it was like, we've had statistics since the 1800s. Now we're just calling it AI. Like it's, it's <laughs> still just regression. Like uh -huh. maybe you actually need a neural net, but a lot of what you need is regression, like, yeah. you know, which Gauss gave us in the 1800s. So chat GPT is not overhyped. So I would say every single one of our developers now, like they're effectively pair programming with chat GPT or co-pilot, co which is chat GPT. Wow. And so like, I think our developers are twice as effective. And from a marketing perspective, I can write a like high quality web content piece in 15 minutes now instead of three hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, these are big, big changes. So that's been- That adds up. Yeah, that's been quickly. really helpful. Gotcha. And what are what are some cool stats on, on Carbon Lighthouse? Just for everyone else to know so far where you're at, you know, what yeah. the impact, whatever you like to share. I mean, the main thing I care about is we've eliminated 36 power plants worth of emissions. So wow. by the way, we track 49,964 left to go, but we'll <laughs> get there just before it's too late. And we can do, I think on the order of 10X growth in both revenue and impact without winning a single new customer just by expanding across the portfolios wow. we have. Yeah, so oh, that's, that's very much what we're focused on. Yeah. I love that. Anything else that you'd like to share for for the group, for anyone here? So again, we're we're all founders, venture back. We got our own companies and in, in many different stages. And where's series B or series A or seed or anything you'd like to share? It can be advice. It can be just, you know, anything you want to share about that, that can be helpful, that we can be helpful for, for you, just for us to know. I really like Steve Blake. I think that's probably come through. <laughs> yeah, it actually, oh, can I ask you one thing about Steve Blake? Because I had not, Please. I had not read his work. I, I know I'm ashamed. You've said it so many <laughs> times now that I'm like, I, I, I'm too ashamed to even ask you this. But what, what's what's the biggest takeaway from Steve Blake? You've mentioned about the hypothesis. My biggest takeaway from Steve Blake is like, 
my co-founder and I read a lot of various business books, textbooks, um, mm-hmm. sales books, and they're not stage appropriate for founders. Like mm. good to great, it's just not relevant. Like there are parts that are good for sure, but like right. it's not worth reading and like spin mm. selling or challenger sale. Like all of these things are true. And they're all not relevant. Like you want to be like Johnny with the shoes and Johnny with the shoes doesn't need to be a good salesman because his product is so good and like Mm -hmm. good to great doesn't give you that. And all the different like medic sales training, like it doesn't give you that. And the three P's of marketing positioning is really important. Pay attention to that one. That Mm -hmm. gives you that. And like, if your Mm -hmm. price is off by 10 X, that'll kill you. Like, Like that stuff. It's not stage appropriate. And Steve Blank's methodology, if you're seed or series A, is super, super stage appropriate. And one of few things that is, like crossing the chasm also nails it in that regard. But most of the business books out there, like therefore the researches in larger stage companies are like at a minimum series B stage companies where you're no longer storytelling, like you're storytelling by metrics. Like Okay, in the last 100 deals I won, like these were the timelines for each. These were the ones that didn't go through. Like this is my standard deviation. And like when you have that data, awesome. And there's a lot of stuff you can do with it. But for seed and series A, like you need to focus on disproving your hypotheses as fast as humanly possible so you can cycle through and find the one that really is it for you. And that's what Startup Owner's Manual and the whole lean methodology from Steve Blake and that whole ethos is is helpful with all right well i know i'm reading starting tomorrow i love that thank you brandon for for sharing this journey and story and lessons 